If you have your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Matthew's Gospel. 26th chapter. Shall we pray together? Our Father, we have opened before us your word. And for all who've put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. And I pray, our Father, that the Spirit might teach your people, your children, his precious word. Grant that we would find encouragement, instruction, and that we would be obedient, that we would be more than just, as James puts it, more than hearers, but to be doers of the word of God. Thank you for the example that we have before us this morning. Speak to us from the example of this beautiful woman. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is estimated that 60% of all Americans have in their lifetime been a member of some fraternal organization. That may be uh, no more than a society in a neighborhood that's banded together to purchase eggs or meat or vegetables or fruit once a week or once a month or whatever. It could perhaps be Boy Scouts or Bluebirds. It could be some uh, fraternity or sorority, usually designated by letters of the Greek alphabet. It could be business or community-related, perhaps Rotarians or Kiwanis, or as they are sometimes referred to, one of the animal clubs, uh, moose, elks, lions. This morning, I want to introduce us to another group, one that is biblical in its origin. It comes from Matthew chapter 26 and verse 7. We'll go back and look at other verses in our text uh, of 1 through 16 of Matthew 26. But just to read uh, where I'm coming from initially, 26 verse 7. A woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. I don't know who first referred to this, but I have picked up on it and have used it for a long time. I call this the order of the alabaster box. This society had a woman, a beautiful, godly woman, as its first member. It had no secret handshake. Its members have no secret sign whereby they identify themselves one to another. There is no lengthy application process. There are no fearful initiation rites. You can't be blackballed. Entrance requires only the strength which is provided by our Heavenly Father. And there's always room. Please get this. If you haven't gotten anything else, get this. There's always room for new members. 
the order of the alabaster box. As we look at this this morning, I'll suggest some other things about it, but I believe in these first 16 verses of Matthew 26, there's a very important lesson. A lesson for individuals, a lesson for a church. The lesson is this, the true source and measure of divine service and the means of growing insight into God's purposes is love for Jesus. I'm sure if I started on the front row here and we just went all through and asked the question, do you love the Lord Jesus? The answer would be yes. I have no reservation about that. But I hope as we look through these verses, and in particular verses 6 and following, that you will ask yourself the question, how does my love, how does my devotion to the Lord compare with the ones that we see in the text this morning? I personally believe that, you know, when folks go to church, whether it's in Sunday school or whether it's in the worship service, preaching of the Word, that when things are presented to us, we ought to internalize them sufficiently to ask ourselves some questions. How do we measure up in terms of the Scripture? And I don't see really much purpose in coming to church if we're not going to do that. Okay, you get to see your friends. You get to have fellowship. But that's not the heart of it, is it? Is, it the, is the only reason we come to church just to see our friends? I think that we need to internalize God's precious word, Sunday school, and hour of worship. And I trust that I, along with all who are here this morning, will ask ourselves some penetrating questions about the example of this beautiful woman that we see on the pages of Matthew chapter 26. The lesson is taught to us by the actions of Mary of Bethany. She's one of the most interesting characters I find on the pages of sacred scripture. She figures prominently in at least three scenes in the New Testament. And in each scene, she is found at the feet of of the Lord Jesus. In Luke 10, she is at the feet of Jesus to listen and to learn as he teaches. In John 11, before the resurrection of Lazarus, Mary is at the feet of the Lord Jesus to weep and to be comforted by him. And here in our text, as well as in the parallel passage in John chapter 12, she again is at the feet of the Lord Jesus, this time to express to him in a very graphic and visual way her love. That's remarkable. Three times she appears very, very prominently on the pages of sacred scripture, and each time she's found at the feet of the Lord Jesus. In light of that, it's little wonder to me that she receives one of the Bible's greatest commendations. Look at Matthew 26, verse 13. 
What words here? Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. You realize what a commendation that is? Wherever the gospel is preached in this world, Jesus said, what this woman has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. Our text this morning has three sections in it. I'm going to dwell on the second one, but it does have three sections. The authorities are plotting the death of the Son of God in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 13, we have the anointing of Mary, or by Mary, of Bethany. And then the third section in verses 14, 15, 16, the agreement of Judas with the priests. I want to begin by looking at the authorities and the plotting that's going on with respect to the death of the Son of Man. And at first, there's a conference that takes place here with the disciples in verses 1 and 2. Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2. And it came about that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be delivered up for crucifixion. Now go back to verse 1 with me for just a moment. To what does our text refer when we read those words? Jesus had finished all these words. What's the reference there? Well, we need to go back two chapters, and I'm not going to spend any time doing that. I'm just going to point you to it. The reference here, all these words, is to the Olivet Discourse in the preceding two chapters of Matthew. Jesus had answered the questions of the disciples regarding the end of the age. And now he has something else for them. Verse 2 says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man is to be delivered up for the crucifixion. Dr. McGee has, I think, a very interesting comment with respect to verse 2. Listen to what he had to say. Every incident and detail in this chapter point to the cross. There is a trip hammer precision here that may give the reader the impression that Jesus is caught up in a vortex of circumstances over which he has no control. And then Dr. McGee continues. A careful examination and consideration, however, will reveal that he is the master of the circumstances. He is never more kingly than when he draws near the cross. Anytime we think about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, I believe it's helpful for us to recall the words of Simon Peter in Acts chapter 2. Peter said, listen to, listen to these words, him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. It's clear that at times God may foreordain events. And at the same time, there is a human responsibility in those events. 
And in the crucifixion, there was the work of God the Father. In Isaiah chapter 53, we read, It pleased the Father to bruise him. There's the work of the Son, for he voluntarily gave himself. He says in John's gospel, No man takes my life from me. I lay it down. He laid down his life voluntarily. And then there is the instrumentality of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So there is the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. We could write that over verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 5, we see the wicked hands of the chief priests and the scribes along with Judas. And that's exactly what Peter said. Notice the consultation of the chief priests and scribes in verses 3 and 4 and 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth to kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, that's not during the Passover, lest a riot occur among the people. Were it not for the weighty matter which is being discussed here, their consideration and their consultation together might be thought of as a typical committee meeting. They got together desiring to carry out a particular goal, but they must have had more opinions than they had people. Some felt he should have already been put to death. Others said, now's the time. Still others said, no, we must wait, lest on a feast day, a riot break out. Rather typical, I think, of some committee meetings anyway. I find verse 5, however, to be very interesting. Verse 5 says, But they were saying, Not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. The very ones who had put him to death said they would not crucify him during the Passover. Did you get that in verse 5? We can't do this. Passover, a riot might break out. Jesus had said that he would die during the Passover. Question, when did Jesus die? During the Passover. You see, Jesus and not his enemies set the time for the cross. Matthew is the gospel of the king. He is in command. You know, the psalmist said way back in Psalm 76 that God makes the wrath of men to praise him. And he was in control. He set the time for his crucifixion. So we have the authorities plotting the death of the Son of Man. And then we want to look at what I would like to spend most of my time on this morning, and that is the anointing by Mary of Bethany in verses 6 through 13. The incident described for us in verses 6 and following is remarkable in so many ways. What we have described for us is something that took place on Tuesday or Wednesday. prior to the crucifixion. 
And at this time, Jesus recounts his being anointed by Mary. The actual anointing that we read about here in the text took place on Saturday night at a gathering in the house of Simon the leper. Verses 6 and 7. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it upon his head as he reclined at the table. Evidently they were there to enjoy the fact of Lazarus being raised from the dead. It was a happy occasion. They were joyful. And in the midst of this situation, Mary apparently went over to her purse or wherever she had this vial, and she brought it out. And with this uh, vial of costly perfume, she broke it and poured its contents out over the head of the Lord Jesus. And it was such a lavish outpouring that it splashed down over his entire body, even his feet. John, in his account, refers to this perfume as the ointment of spikenard, very costly. That's John 12, 3. Now, what was it that Mary poured over the body of the Lord Jesus? Well, if you would look up in your Bible encyclopedia, you'll find, just as I did, that spikenard, or nard, was a very expensive perfume that was imported from the Himalayan mountains. It was costly for two reasons. One, it had to be imported from India. And two, if you'll allow me to put it this way, the packaging. An alabaster jar. It had to be sealed for its protection. And that's what we read about. And that's what is meant in the authorized version, the alabaster box of ointment. Now we learn from Judas Iscariot just how costly this was. Again, from the Gospel of John, we see Judas raising the question, why was not this ointment sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii. Judas's should have been given to the poor. Now, because we on payday get dollars, not denarii, it will help us to remember a little story that Jesus told in which one denarius was given to a working man for his labor of one day. And since there are approximately 300 working days in a year, the cost of that perfume would have been equal to a man's annual wage. Can you begin to see how great was the act of Mary of Bethany in anointing the Lord Jesus with this precious ointment? What a tremendous, what a tremendous act of love and devotion. How she must have loved him. She had saved that for his death to anoint him. Again, 
how she must have loved him. I'm overcome by that. A working man's annual wage. She broke it and poured it on the Lord Jesus. She had been keeping it, as I said, for the day of his death. You see, that was the method of embalming in those days in Palestine. Because of the heat, bodies tended to corrupt very quickly. And so it was customary that perfume was used lavishly in death and in the burial of individuals. Again, I say, what a marvelous act of devotion. And it also reflects insight, her insight, into the fact that Jesus was going to die. She kept this, and she knew when to use it because of her love for the Savior, I believe. Question. Did Mary waste this ointment? You know, in the gospel records, we read that on the morning of the first day of the week, others went out to anoint his, other women went out to anoint his body. Were they able to do that? No. Why? Because he had arisen. He was not there. Mary alone. Mary alone had the privilege of anointing Jesus. What a singular privilege was hers. The story continues with Judas' action in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. But when the disciples were indignant <clears throat> when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Apparently, from verse 8. Judas was the leader of the group at this point. He's the one that raised the question. But it's attributed to the disciples. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. And they said, why this waste? This perfume could have been sold for 300 denarii. And the money given to the poor. What a contrast between Judas and Mary of Bethany. Mary gave to the Lord. Judas suggested should have been given to the poor. Mary drew attention to the Lord. Judas drew attention to the poor. Mary had a mature affection for Jesus. Judas had a mature alienation for Jesus. Folks, to me, it seems in Judas, there's a a number of illustrations and a a number of things that we need to take note of. One of them, to me, is it shows how near, how close one might be to the Lord outwardly, and yet in heart be far from Him. Judas thought of Mary's deed as foolishness, as a senseless waste Jesus regarded Mary's deed as worthy of a perpetual memorial. By the way, I'll not go there to John 12, but I hope 
If you have an opportunity, you'll go back and read in John 12, first eight verses. You'll find there that all this by Judas was feigned. It wasn't real. Do you know why Judas wanted that money from the perfume to be sold? It says in John 12 that he was the keeper of the purse. And he was pilfering from the disciples' purse. So he obviously wanted, not for the poor, he wanted the money to go in the disciples' purse so he could have it to steal. Now that's what the scripture says. There is a rebuke from our Lord in response to verse 8 and the disciples. And that's in verses 10 and following. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother this woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For the poor you have with you always. But you do not always have me. I believe there are at least three things from these verses that we need to take to heart. First, the words of our Lord indicate the primacy of the spiritual over the social. According to our Lord, it was far more important to minister to Him than to the poor. Now, that's not to ignore the poor, but it is simply to state what our Lord taught. Jesus said, the poor you always have with you, me you do not always have with you. By the way, in that verse, the word me is moved forward in the original text. Why? For emphasis. Me, you do not always have with you. The spiritual takes precedent over the social. The second thing to observe here is that these words emphatically proclaim his preeminence. Third, thing that we note here is that always in the life of every disciple, there is a need to distinguish the things that are important and the things that are imperative. His interests always and forever outweigh any other interests that a disciple might have, no matter how legitimate the others might be. His interests outweigh all others. And then the last verse in this second major section, there is the promise I referred to a few moments ago. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman hath, has done shall also be spoken of in memory of her. I, I don't know how many times I've read this passage of Scripture this past week. But I am taken with that commendation from our Lord. Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be commended. What she has done will be spoken in memory of her, Mary of Bethany. Well, we've looked at the authorities' plot in the opening verses. We've looked at the anointing of Mary, finally we come to the agreement of Judas. 
with the priests in verses 14, 15, and 16. Verse 14, Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. If the word then in verse 14 carries any time value, and I believe it does, if it does carry any time value, then it seems that following the rebuke of verse 10, Jesus said, why do you bother this woman? And then there is the, the then, one of the twelve named Judas goes out in verse 15 and said, what are you willing to give me to deliver him to you? And they weighed out to him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. 30 pieces of silver. The mention of 30 pieces of silver is very frequent in the Old Testament. One of those is, I think, very enlightening. Exodus chapter 21. It is stated that an ox belonging to one man goring another man's servant, the life of that servant was to be paid for with 30 pieces of silver. In other words, the price that Judas received for betraying Jesus was the price of a slave who had been gored by an ox. That's what Judas thought of Jesus. Let me conclude with this thought. We can evaluate actions in one of several ways. A soldier's actions are evaluated by obedience and submission to duty. And business actions are evaluated by utility. In other words, will this produce a legitimate profit? Mary's act was not evaluated for duty, for it wasn't her duty to do this. Nor was her act evaluated by utility. For from purely a business standpoint, this act would be viewed as a waste. But Mary's actions are evaluated by her love for the Lord Jesus. And her love caused her to expend what I believe, and so far as we know from the Scriptures, to expend her most costly possession on the Lord Jesus. The world can never understand the so-called impracticality of love for Christ. But Jesus did. Jesus said, this is a good work. May I ask you a question? Are you a member of the order of the alabaster box? Have you or would you willingly give your most prized possession because you love the Lord Jesus? Would you give it to him? I find that a penetrating question for my heart.
Have you broken your alabaster box of ointment? For Jesus' sake, are you waiting for something else? I hope all of us will do it while we have the opportunity. Lest the opportunity slip by us and be gone forever. Do it because you love him. Pray with me. Father, we confess that we hold on to the things of this world so tightly. And we give all of the good-sounding words of excuse for holding that which is dear to us and that which is social over that which is spiritual. Forgive us, O God. Help us to love you supremely. There's no one else in this world who would die for us. There's no one who has died for us personally, particularly, but Jesus. Oh, to love him supremely. I pray that the example of Mary of Bethany would resonate in our souls and stir us to join the order of the alabaster box. These things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake and for his glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, we rejoice in the addition of two to the body of believers of this church. We thank you for that. We do pray for continued growth. Lord, we do recognize that in this life we're not promised a healthy body and to be well every day of our lives. We know we must be sick and eventually die, but God, we do hold on to that promise that the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So I'm going to call on you now by name for those that are sick and needy in this church. I'm just not going to refer to them as the sick, but I want to call their names. And I want us to pray to you, Lord, for their healing. I want to pray for James Bunker the suffering that he has endured all this time, Lord, in silence without complaining. And I'm going to ask you to heal him. I pray for Joyce Cotton. And think about at her age, the broken bones that she's had to endure, Lord, and I ask that you knit them back together painlessly. And then she can enjoy the rest of her years in peace. And Lord, for the young man, David McCreary, I pray the treatment that he is about to receive will be painless and 100% effective and he will be healed completely. And we'll give you all the glory for that. I pray for Tom Jarenko, Lord. I pray a miracle on his life, that you heal his body. And Lord, he has been a blessing to this church, demonstrating how he has endured this. And Lord, one that's not on here, I pray for Becky Thomas, that she'll be able to lay down that cane and come back in this choir loft because I love to see her sing. 
And Lord, for all the singing and the fellowship and the giving that we have enjoyed today, Lord, we praise you for that and ask that you continue to be in it in the coming days when much is happening in this church, so much change. And lastly, Lord, in a time when you have been removed from higher education, we are pleased to be able to support a school that's sole purpose is to prepare young Christian men and women to go out and spread the gospel, Piedmont International. All this we do pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.